test. I'm good. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Lucas. Yes? Uh, let's go NRSV. Is that okay, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, glad to be back. Um, been away for a week. Um, and it's been a whirlwind. I, I came back with uh, Patty and Rochelle from up northern, in Northern California, um, and then they immediately went away. Uh, so they went off to Catalina Island for a few days. Um, it's my daughter's first time sort of um, doing a class trip with her class. So it left me at the house by myself, and I don't really remember ever being by myself in years. I just don't remember that. Um, and so, you know, you have all these grand plans when it's like, oh, I don't have to rush from work and pick up my daughter and then get home and cook dinner and then do homework. And then at the end of the day, once she's sort of settled down, turn my sights to my own work. And, you know, then Patty comes home and Patty sends her off to bed. And then I sort of get a few hours if I choose to sort of do my thing. All that was now free. All that was free. I could do whatever I wanted to do. What do you think I did? <laughs> it's not true. I stayed at work till like bedtime. Like it was crazy. Um, but it's just stuff that, that you get an opportunity to do when you're not there. And one of the things that I did in staying, staying at work, it was not just doing the work I was doing. It was actually, I got a chance to just sort of throw myself into some of the scriptures. Um, just knowing that, you know, I've had a, a few thoughts in, in the back of my mind that I like to chase, so I'll just sort of write down and jot down a few notes and with, with hopes at some point that I'll have time to get back to it and just expand upon it and just dig into the scriptures. Well, I had, I had that time, so I was able to take that opportunity. So I'm going to be speaking to you from um, one of these trains of thoughts, but I think it's, it's something how God works because, you know, Frank pretty much preached the whole sermon uh, just in the announcements that he gave because um, the title is basically Desperate Times. And... I'll be looking at First Chronicles chapter 29, uh, but it's going to sound real familiar just because Frank pretty much said all the themes as he was up here speaking, so I just take that as confirmation from the Lord. So that being said, uh, just by show of hands, just in terms of how I'd like to launch on this one. So I want to start with an illustration that I pull from um, Catholic tradition, but I, I wasn't raised Catholic, um, so I don't, I'm very limited in my knowledge of it, so just curious. How many folks here actually were raised Catholic, are Catholic, went to Catholic school, just familiar with, okay, Catholicism, all right. Good number of most of us then. So forgive me if I miss it, um, but, but I'm getting sort of my information um, directly from somebody who spent some time with, actually, he spent time with nuns, uh, the Sisters of Mercy, um, and I, was, I had met his mother a couple of years ago, um, and she passed along his contact. Um, and so this is sort of his report, but he's not Catholic, he's actually Jewish, um, and this is, it's an interesting perspective, so I'm, I'm sort of getting my perspective of what God is doing through a group of nuns from somebody who is Jewish, and not only is he Jewish, he's atheist, and he spent time with these Catholic nuns. Um, the point being, God is still amazing in terms of how God will work through all of that. So, the Sisters of Mercy. So, first of all, um, I don't ever think that I've ever met a Catholic nun personally, right? 
And, and there's probably a good reason for that, not just that I'm not Catholic. Um, there are just not very many of them. So over the years, what they've actually experienced is they've had fewer and fewer people, fewer and fewer women, women coming into the orders, so becoming nuns, basically. Um, and that's left a bit of a challenge, a bit of a struggle um, for those who are called to those orders, for, for the Catholic Church. Um, as they've seen the numbers dwindle over the years, what they found is the average age of a nun in the U.S. is 80. That's the average age of a nun in the U.S. is 80 years old. So they, they face this season, um, I would say a desperate season, where, wow, well, what's going to happen to us? Because as we age and we retire or, or pass away, um, there's no one to sort of come in and take over and take the place and keep some of these missions going and some of the things that they've been doing. Well, so they, they faced that season um, in a very interesting way. Um, and I think what we see today, just from what I've, I've heard from this person who spent time with them, um, it's still something amazing because it doesn't depend on the numbers that they have. God is still showing up in some pretty miraculous ways. And I would even say, and this would be my opinion, God is showing up today with nuns, particularly this group of nuns, in ways that you know, they're, they're participating even more so in the kingdom of God, even more so than previously. Not that they were not pre participating previously, but even more so today for some ways um, because they actually faced a season of desperation. And what they did in that season of desperation was they actually turned to God and in the midst of that process, God has brought about some things that even though we don't necessarily see their numbers skyrocketing, we do see the impact of how God is showing up in the world in new ways as a result of what they're doing. And so when you get these nuns together, um, any conversation that they have, any opportunity that they have to come together, um, this fellow says there's, there's one topic that's bound to come up amongst this group of, of nuns who average age is 80, so you've got people who are above 80, some in their 90s in this group. He said, and one topic's bound to come up, and when it comes up, it's like the energy hits the room, and he described it as if like you open a window and a cool blast of air rushes in, and it just sort of fills the room. Um, and this topic that they have this energy around is Vatican II. So in 1962, uh, the Pope at the time, Pope John something, 23, I think, um, in the Vatican Council, basically encouraged the nuns across all the orders to go and actually seek out and rediscover their founding stories, the things that actually brought them together as a community of believers. They lived in cloisters. They lived amongst each other in community. And, and mine and discern and understand what those stories were about, the point being they were actually to reengage what they call their charism. C-H-A-R-I-S-M, charism. Um, now, that's a new term for me but just because I'm not from a Catholic background. Um, but similar to charisma, okay, similar to charisma, what charism actually refers to is basically it's, it's like an a essential gift that when a community of believers comes together and sort of establishes themselves, this is the gift that is bestowed or shows up for that community. It's like the DNA of that community. This is what they, what they are truly about. Um, and it's, it's like deeper than like a mission statement. Uh, we're here to help the poor in this way. It's deeper than a vision statement. Um, 
Because missions can be achieved, visions can be realized, but then they have to go back and rediscover, okay, well now we've achieved that. Who is it that God has actually called us to be and how do we continue to live that out? And so that's what charism actually means. And so as a result of them going through this process, they, they hit a place where it was just a desperate time, they sought God and they actually took these, this uh, encouragement seriously to go back and understand what are our founding stories, what is God establishing us, and who are we in terms of our DNA in very specific ways, they came out with, with some really interesting um, manifestations of ministry. And so, for example, the charism for the Sisters of Mercy, very straightforward, very intuitive. Mercy. That's their DNA, mercy. And particularly, they, they, they realize that what that mercy actually means is, is we have to turn our hearts towards the misery that's in the world and actually show compassion. That's, that's their DNA, turning their hearts towards the misery of the world and showing compassion. And from that, what they actually began to then manifest once they got in touch with those founding stories and who they were, they got in touch with all new aspects of ministry where they actually participated and locked in in ways that, that in my opinion, looks probably even more like Christ in the world today than maybe it had previously in previous generations. And first of all, they committed to the spiritual disciplines out of this process, so prayer, fasting, all those things that we would think of as the disciplines. But in addition to committing to the disciplines, they also then became much more present in the world, much more present in the world. So instead of being cloistered away from the world, they actually left that environment and went out into the world. The uh, black and white habits that you know, we think of with that, that nuns wear, they exchanged those for just normal clothes. I mean, they, you couldn't tell a nun by their clothes anymore uh, because they just basically took on the clothes that everybody else was wearing. Um, they much more engaged the society. You, you would much more likely to see these nuns actually participating in protests on the street, um, and even so in ways where they would participate in, pro in protest against the abuses of the Catholic Church, against the institution which was, you know, for the Catholic Church as the institution, they're like, hmm, maybe we should have told them to do this. But point being, God actually used this process and actually brought them into these new manifestations of Christ's presence in the world. Um, and as a result of that, this is why this story is actually passed on to me that I'm actually passing on to you, because this young man, who was the son of the person who I had met and talked to, um, Jewish, atheist, well... He's a millennial. And one of the things that, you know, we always sort of get down on millennials, but, you know, one of the things that the millennials actually um, seek out and strive for and have sort of a hunger for, uh, in, in general, is community. And it's interesting because, you know, they, they, they may not stay in a job for very long, but, but they have a social network, you know, that's really vibrant, you know. And so I've, I've been checked a lot of times when I'm speaking, you know, sort of from my perspective as a therapist and saying, Hey, you know, you single people, you got to be careful because you can get too isolated. And then they sh they, they're quick to shoot back. Well, you know what? You married people. There's no such thing. There, there's nothing like isolation when you're living with somebody, but you have no connection with them. That's real isolation. And I'm like, you know, they probably got something there. And somehow they stay connected to their social circles. But it's something that they actually are, are, are working out, you know, as a group. And so these nuns who God has called them into new manifestations in ways that sometimes even brings them into conflict with their institution because they're holding their institution accountable and being prophetic 
in all the ways that they need to be prophetic. So they see that you know, what we've done all these years is we've actually lived in community, communities of believers. We've lived in community. Well, we've got these millennials who, they're not Catholic. Some of them are atheists. Many of them are other faiths. But what they're seeking is community. And so they opened up the, the cloisters. I guess, are they called monasteries? I'm not quite sure what they're called. Convents, thank you. Um, opened up the convents and basically invited these millennials in to actually do community, to live for seasons with them and actually share and talk and break bread. And it actually has become a ministry um, and a pretty powerful ministry. And people are being touched and reached in ways who, who would never darken the doorway of a church, any church um, of any ilk, um, and some who would, you know, would be Buddhist and some who would be a little bit of everything that would just be really far removed from anybody who would actually be raised from a Christian background in terms of any sort of a dialogue around faith. But yet these conversations are happening. And this young man was a part of that conversation, and he passed this information along to his mom in the world, and I'm receiving some of that as well, and I'm passing that on to you, just to say, you know, God is really amazing. You know, what God is actually doing is showing up in the world in ways that, you know, are very consistent with Jesus Christ. They're being Christ in the world. And it doesn't depend on their numbers because they're not growing in numbers because those numbers haven't picked up in terms of people going into the ministry in terms of being, becoming nuns. But their impact, their impact for the kingdom of God is there. They're participating in God's kingdom in ways much more so probably even compared to the traditions that they have, which primarily focused on teaching and nursing uh, for this particular order. And so I sort of use this as a launching point into where we're going because sort of keep this frame in mind as we look at the passage that we're going to look at. How we respond to desperate times, what God actually will do with us in that time as we seek him, and then we actually see that we are invited in ways to participate even more so in the kingdom of God in ways that might be quite unexpected, ways that we couldn't have actually envisioned, but yet the kingdom is actually represented. We're actually being Christ in the world in ways that are much more powerful on the other side of this. So let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and it's a, a passage that goes from chapter, uh, verse 1 through 14, but I'm going to break this up. Um, I'm going to start with verses 1 through 5 initially here. So 1 Chronicles, thank you, 1 through 5. Now, a bit about the context, though. Let me frame this a bit. So, Chronicles. How many folks have shied away from reading this book? <laughs> it, it is complete genealogy for chapter upon chapter, name upon name. It's just, you know, starting from Adam and going all the way up to their present time. And it's like, not even very original. It, if you read 2 Samuel, you basically have read Chronicles. I mean, it's just kind of lifted verbatim. If, if it were written today, somebody would truly fail for plagiarism. It's truly just lifted. Okay. And, and you'd wonder, well, what's the point of this? Because all of these scriptures we can find in other, other parts of scripture, like in huge chunks. So what's, what's the point of this? Well, I think what's helpful to understand about Chronicles is Understand what was going on at the time when the person who wrote this, we call them the chronicler, the person who writes things down, um, understand the time that they lived in. This chronicler, whether he or she, lived in a time in Israel's history where it was actually very desperate, extremely desperate. And so what was going on during this time, this was a time where 
Israel had ceased to be a kingdom, ceased to be a nation because the Babylonians had come in and taken over. They had completely burned the temple down to the ground so it didn't exist anymore. It was destroyed. And in the process, they also then took captive most of the population of Jews there in that region. So when you look at Jerusalem, there was only a handful of people left there. Most people had been deported out to different countries in different regions because of successive waves of deportation. So they completely took the population and sent them elsewhere. So pretty much you had Jews who were taken out of their homeland and basically placed all over the known world in different places. Um, and that went on for 70 years. So you had this group of people who maybe the oldest people knew what it was like to actually live in the land of Israel. But pretty much most people had been born in other countries, had been born in other regions, had spoken other language, and actually knew other customs. And were probably pretty well established in some of these countries and regions as well. So they didn't have the same connection to the land of Israel, but they, it was still in their history. It wasn't so far removed that it was forgotten, and you still had some people who were alive who actually had that experience. So this is the context and this is the time in which this chronicler has, has lived. And what, what happens during this time is Persia comes in, defeats the Babylonians, and as a response to defeating the Babylonians says, okay, well, we're going to set up our own state around that area of, of Jerusalem, and we're going to let the Jews go back to live in that land. And so after 70 years, the Jews have this opportunity to return to the land that Persia has actually set up. And this is where the chronicler actually picks up. This is the time and space where the chronicler is living. And so the Jews who do choose to return, because not all choose, choose to return, they're, they're basically, you know, when, when I ask people, hey, you know, where are you from? And they say California. Usually for most people, I can say, yeah, but where, where's your family from? Like, where, what other country did you come from? And unless you're like native, or unless you're like, you know, this was once, you know, Mexico, unless you're like connected there genealogically, you usually are coming from someplace else. And so when people come from someplace else, of course the people who make the move, they are fond of the home country. They, they remember all of those things. But the children and the grandchildren, when you ask them, hey, you want to go back? No. <laughs> because all they know is here, right? And so that's a little bit about what, what's setting the context here. So those Jews who chose to go back, for whatever reason they chose to go back, they went back with this ambition to rebuild the temple. They have the memories of the greatness of Israel. They have this, this idea that, you know, God has spoken all these things through the scripture and, and he sets sort of Israel as the center of the world and there's a plan and they're in touch with that and they go back. But in order to rebuild the temple, that's a monumental task. Temple was monumental in terms of resources, in terms of just the, the labor that's needed. It's a monumental task. It's going to take not just a few Jews, it's going to take a mass of people, a mass of resources to do that. Well, the problem is you don't have a mass of Jews living in Jerusalem. The Jews are dispersed all over the world. So how do you rally people who are no longer necessarily connected or present to this place and space and get them to contribute and participate in what it's going to take to build the temple, rebuild the temple? That's the chronicler's task. And what the chronicler then therefore does is he basically retells the history to all these Jews that are dispersed all over the world. Here's your history starting from Adam, and he takes them all the way up to the present day. That's why you see it's just genealogy upon genealogy. And then he particularly emphasizes, he or she, this time in Israel's history where you've got King David and King Solomon 
sort of at a time at the end of King David's reign when they're just about to build the temple. And what God actually does amongst David and the people and Solomon in order to bring that temple building about was quite amazing. So what the Spirit of God does in moving amongst the people is it energizes the people in such a way where they actually then participate in that temple building and that temple actually represented God's presence in the world. That's the intention of the temple. So God's presence in the world to show the world who their God is, they put all this energy and effort into that and all their resources. So that's the context for Chronicles. It's to try to rally the people who are represented everywhere in different sort of languages and cultures now mixed in with it in a way that sort of reminds them of who they are, takes them back to their charism, sort of an Old Testament version of a charism, so they can get back in touch with that, and then out of that gets manifested some new ways that God is showing up in the world. In this way, the temple. So, verses 1 through verse 5. It reads, King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple will not be for mortals, but for the Lord God. So I've provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones, and marble in abundance. Moreover, in addition to all that I've provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for, all, <coughs> excuse me, and for all the work to be done by artisans. Gold for the things of gold, and silver for the things of silver. Who then will willingly consecrate, who then will offer willingly consecrating themselves today for the Lord. Verses 1 through 5. This is an interesting passage. Okay, this is an interesting passage to me, and it's one that I've sort of, honestly, I've had this passage on the back burner for some years now, for some years now. Um, when, if you've ever heard this passage preached about, typically they're, they're talking about a time where God builds the temple and, you know, the people and David get an opportunity to basically not build it, but fundraise for it. And so you'll hear a lot of churches um, and a lot of ministries sort of pull this scripture out when it's time to actually do fundraising, right? Building projects. And they use it as a template to say, okay, so the leadership has to lead, and so they have to be sort of David-like, and they have to sort of contribute in a way, in a generous way, as an example to the people, and then God actually does something with that. And that is absolutely fine. I don't have a problem with that at all. That is good stuff. That is good stuff. I want to take a little bit of a different look at it, though, just in terms of David and David's perspective. Because David's always an interesting character to me. David is like probably one of the most real people on paper, you know, in terms of reading the Old Testament. It's like if you want to just see what like, it's really like to go through and deal with stuff and deal with life, read what David has written. Read what has actually been written about David. So David, man after God's own heart, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And, and what do you think of when you think about the Psalms? What I typically think of is, you know, it starts off and David is usually talking from a place of despair, melancholy. He's given up. God doesn't see me. Where are you, God? It's just one of those places that we can be when we're going through some desperate stuff. 
when we've actually gotten sort of beaten down in a way where we kind of have no gas in the tank and we can't see where God is. And I don't know if you've ever been through a season where it's like, you know what, you're going through things and you just don't think that God is aware of it, obviously, because of look at what's happening. And, and David's, a lot of what David writes starts with that. But then as you continue to read David, he doesn't end there. David always sort of hangs in there with God, and, and God does something, and God moves in such a way where, where David sees it and responds, and how you know that David responds and gets back in touch with God and recognizes this is because David's perspective changes. And so psalms that start off with you know, bleakness and melancholy usually end up you know, with triumph and you know, victory and joy, even when the situation may not have necessarily changed, he gets back in touch with God's perspective in the matter, and that's what you see, that's when you see a reorientation in David. And so when you look at Psalms like Psalm 22, uh, where you may not know it by heart, but I guarantee you know it, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you think, oh yeah, that's bleak, that's the stuff that you hear, but that, you heard Jesus say that on the cross, in the darkest hour. And I say, yeah, but keep reading, you know, because Jesus knew the rest of, the rest of this psalm, and the psalm goes on to, to talk about how, you know what, victory will be the Lord's, and generations unborn are going to hear about the Lord, and in the end of the day, they're all going to be able to stand and say in victory, it is the Lord who did it. That is actually what Psalms 22 is actually conveying. But how do you get there from the place where you start with, my God, my God, where has all forsaken me? There's a process there, but you can see that process anytime you read David. And I think we can use this lens then, because even though our chronicler is trying to convey to Israel the glory days and how God showed up and actually moved amongst the people, we can still see if we use that same lens that, okay, but if we're talking about David, then we're probably going to see some places where God is going to actually get his attention and we're going to see a change or a reorientation and we'll see something greater on the other side with David. And I think we can see the same thing in the passage that we're reading. And so, particularly, one of the things that I noticed in the passage, even though David gave a tremendous amount of resources to the, re to the building of the temple, do you notice the pronouns that are going on in the passage that we just read? Pronouns. Remember, that's from English class. Now, here, here's a little bit of a side. I was not very good in English, and here's the, there's a reason for this. I know what a pronoun is, but that's kind of it. I know what a noun, verb, and a pronoun is. I moved around so often as a kid that I missed these classes. I, I truly did. I, I lived in another country when I was little, and then when I got older and I moved to the U.S., they had taught that stuff you know, earlier where they hadn't taught it where I lived. And so I was always just kind of, I don't kind of know what a you know, direct object. I never got that stuff. Okay? But a pronoun, I, I do know, right? And so that's, you know... I, me, my, you, they, those are pronouns. So they take the place of sort of a proper noun. And if you look at the passage that we just read, the pronouns sound a little bit like it's focused on David. It's a lot of eyes. It's a lot of my's. It's a lot of what I gave. It's a lot of David. And so it's interesting because I do think Okay, what's going on with you, David? Because that's not necessarily something that I think we'd pull out of this, this passage of Scripture that, that would be something of note. But I do think, okay, but keep it in mind, David is actually starting off this passage a bit concerned about some things. 
David just has this dream of building the temple. It's going to be to the world this display of their God. And you know what? David has lived his life, and he's got these grand plans, and, you know, let's do it. But then he gets news from God through the prophet Nathan. Actually, you're not going to be the one to build it at all. Why not? Well, because your hands have shed too much blood. So instead of you actually building it, your son's going to build it. Well, Solomon was... Solomon wasn't even born when he first got this message, but by the time Solomon was a young man and sort of ready to sort of step into the the rule and take over and actually start this project, David sort of looks at him. What David sees with Solomon is not, okay, here's somebody who's full of wisdom who can take us all the way home. What David actually sees is somebody who's very young, somebody who's very inexperienced. That's what we actually are reading in this first part of the chapter here. David said to the whole assembly, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen. So he knows God has chosen him. He remembers what God has said. Is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. And the work is great because we're going to build this temple, but it's not just going to be any temple. It's going to be the temple to our God for the world to see. So we want to put all that we can into it. This has got to be grand. And we've got this young whippersnapper who's got no experience, um, and may not even have a concept or fathoming for what is ahead of him in this way. And this catches me because I do think, I remember when I was on the younger side, and and that would be sort of the opinion of the people who are much older than I was, you know, in places like the places where I'd work. You know, if I get a promotion or what have you, it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, they're like, you know, can you do this, da-da-da-da, and I'm like, I've got it. I've got, don't worry about it. It always seems like the older crowd, you know, seems like all they see is just the inexperience and they don't see like the potential. They seem to sort of worry about things in such a way. And now that I'm no longer in that young space, but now I'm sort of have my own thing going and, you know, as I think about sort of passing the reins in ways, I kind of get it now because I'm like, it's not just that you're passing the reins over to people who haven't done it before. It's, you know, all the rigmarole that comes along with life. And you know what it takes, and sometimes it takes quite a bit. Um, And you've lived it, so you kind of know it. So you hold all this stuff, and you sort of look, and it's like, okay, well, are you ready for this? And I don't know, I don't think you're ready for this. And I go through all of that. So I I know a bit about what this is like. But David's sort of in that space. I would use David to say, David's David's in this space. And as a result of David being in this space, getting ready to transfer all power and authority that he has over to a son who doesn't have the experience, but also having at stake, okay, but we've got to build the temple. This is a dream I've had for 27 years, and it's time to make it happen, and you're the one to do it, and I've got to sort of sit back and sit on my hands on this one. Uh, he, he goes to a place where I would say we all have a tendency to go to. He starts to look to his own ability, capability, to contribute and help prepare the way. His own capability, which is why I think we're seeing the I have provided for the house of my God as far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver, bronze, iron, wood for the things of wood. I have provided for the holy house. I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver because of, the, of my devotion to the house of my God, my, I. And yeah, David's a wealthy guy. He's the king. And so he's looking to his own resources and things that he can muster on his own in order to help prepare the way to make this possible. And I think we can go there. I think we can go there. And this is when Frank was talking earlier. I'm like, Frank, you're, you're, you're preaching my sermon. Okay, cut it short. 
But <laughs> yes, we, we can be in a season where we don't necessarily know what the future is going to hold. We know there's some things in store, and we just kind of have to trust God for the process. But in the process of being put in that space where we've got to trust God, it's so easy to then sort of take up things on our own in ways that are not necessarily trusting God. We're trusting in our own power. We're trusting in our own decision-making. And that, that's, that can be a slippery slope a bit. And so I think that's what I want to use to sort of to, to think about it in this way. Um, it's something that we have to be very aware of in our own process. But then God shows up. David is always, if you read anything about David, David is, is good to read because God is going to do something and David is going to see it and David is going to respond and David's going to shift. And David's, that's what I think distinguishes David from most people because we all mess up. And, and David was interesting to me because I'm like, David, you, you're a man after God's own heart. I read the Psalms. I see all this stuff. And I realized that, David, you know, you suffered a lot of times because you were actually being faithful to God. And so man after God's own heart makes sense to me. Be faithful. And even with faithfulness, you can still suffer. Because when I think about King Saul, when Saul was the king before David, David was in his army. And for whatever reason, King Saul targeted David and became jealous and tried to kill him a few times. And, and David remained faithful and wouldn't raise a, a sword or a hand against Saul, wouldn't speak against him, but actually remained faithful to his role. And God protected him, but it was some rough times. We could actually read those in the Psalms. David also suffered, though, because David did some things that brought it upon himself. So just like David was faithful, David messed up. And so when you think about David and Bathsheba, so David sees the lady from his rooftop, and she's bathing, and you know he calls for her and actually has an affair with this lady. Now she's the wife of one of his soldiers who's off in battle. She becomes pregnant. And in response to her becoming pregnant, he doesn't just admit his guilt. He then comes up with this plot which says, okay, well, let's bring her husband Uriah back He's been out in battle, so of course when he comes back, he hasn't seen his wife in a while, so they'll have relations, and the child that comes along, he'll think it's his and everything should be fine. Uriah remains faithful to the duties that he was called to, to the people who he was there fighting alongside of, and he doesn't come back to enjoy the time with his wife when his, his squadron is out there on the battlefield. And so in response to Uriah's faithfulness, David comes up with a different plot, which is, okay, now we've got to target this guy, and when you go into battle, everybody pull back, but you leave Uriah up front by himself, and Uriah was struck down. And it, it, it's just amazing to me, because as many people as I speak to in the different you know, contexts that I work that, that are marked by things like war and, and a lot of conflict, it, it, it's amazing when you see people who've been on the receiving end of some real abuse can later turn that same abuse on other people. You, you'd think they'd be empathic, but instead they dish out the same thing that has actually happened to them. And that's, I think, what we actually see with David in those situations as well. Because David knew what it was like to be a soldier in the king's army and have the king actually target you and try to take you out. And when David then was king... 
Do you think he had any sort of empathy for Uriah? Not at all. He did the same thing to Uriah that was actually done to him, but David was successful. He actually, actually killed Uriah in the process. And, you know, that's you know, a little bit of an aside with this. I think this is why I think it's really important for those of us as parents to keep in mind, you know, the example that we set in the way that we actually act and treat our children and the people around them, their friends, these, this is really important because I think a lot of us may actually struggle today, not because, you know, we are just hell-bent on, you know, getting into mischief and sin. I think the reason why we suffer a lot of times is because we're actually on the receiving end of some pretty bad stuff as kids. Some of us have had parents who had alcoholism, parents who might have, you know, been philanders or slept around and just sort of bounced from house to house, and that was painful. You endured the shame of that as a kid, and crazily, as an adult, we now have a playbook, we now have something modeled for us that in our weak moments, we can actually then enact. We can actually do the same thing. And this is why I just, I'm, I'm really thankful in some ways that, you know, my own dad, you know, I've, I've never heard him swear. And that's, a, that's, you might think, that's not a big deal. Well, he's in the military for 20-something years, right? He trained people. <laughs> He trained people for combat. That's a big deal. He, he, I've never heard him swear. So it was never a temptation for me to do it. When I stub my toe, that's just, I don't have the repertoire in my head as a kid coming. Now I got it now because I watch TV, <laughs> right? But I'm just so mindful of that. So the things that you actually expose your kids to, don't be surprised if you, know, you actually see that stuff coming out because they've had it modeled. It's always say, you know, as a parent, you know, that's, that's quite a special role that you have because you're actually sort of giving your kids sort of models, you know, sort of pages from their playbook that they can sort of go to in seasons, and you want to make sure that those pages are actually good stuff because we can give them good stuff and then we can give them some things that can be some real problems that they'll struggle with later. And so what we see in, in David a lot of times is, hey, you know, an example of, good stuff that we can pass on, but we also see the example of the problems and how those problems actually emerge. That's why I think David's such a real character, um, and so, so many things are written about him. So coming back to the story, so God is actually going to respond to David's actions here. And so that's where we get into verse 6 through verse 9. Verse 6 says, Then the leaders of ancestral houses made their free will offerings in response to David's offering." As did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands, of the hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks uh, of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because these had given willingly for with single mind they had offered freely to the Lord. King David also rejoiced greatly. I had to look up how much this actually was in terms of sort of a today's value. David gave a lot, okay? But the people, the Spirit of God moved, and the people end up giving far more than David could muster. In today's value, this amount is estimated to be $216 billion. <laughs> right, with a B, billion. $216 billion. Now, this was at a time when Israel was in its heyday. Israel was doing very well, so they had prosperity. 
And out of this willingness, the people responded, and into the coffers for the development and the building of the temple came $216 billion on top of what David as king had already contributed. Amazing, right? And this is why I think, too, you know, they, they always say in, in fundraising, they use this as a model, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> the leader's supposed to give as a model, and then the people see that and they give even more, you know, and then God does something with that. And I'm, I'm all good with that. I'm actually all good with that. However, when God shows up in this way, David's response is very interesting. That's what we read in verses 10 through 14. Now remember the pronouns that we saw in the first section. Now look at the pronouns in this section, in verse 10. Then David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our ancestors Israel forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. And now, our God, we give thanks to you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to make this freewill offering? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Different, completely different pronouns there. So instead of I, my, we now have a total focus on God. It is all a focus on God. And this is the shift that we, all, that, that we characteristically see in David whenever we read him. David is responsive to and recognized and responsive to the move of God. And it takes David from a place where he can be sort of focused on his own, focused on things that may not necessarily be the best focus, and actually shift into a position where he becomes focused on God and then the actions flow forward. And so how we move from a place where I would say, you know, our challenges when we find ourselves in seasons where we might be desperate, whether it's lack of numbers, where it's lack of resources, and we have the tendency to sort of then look to our own ability to sort of make the gap, bridge the gap, sort of make up for the difference, and the whole while God is actually sort of waiting for us to get a glimpse of him in some particular ways. Number one, God has got all the resources, all the resources that we have that we think we might contribute to God. God is in control of all of that. We actually don't have anything. You know how, um, no, that's, a, that's not a good joke. Okay, so I'll, I'll leave that. But you, you <laughs> I was, well, was going to say, um, you know how some kids think that they're rich? You remember who you heard this from? Um, some kids think that they're rich and their parents are quick to tell them, no, you're not rich. Your mom and I are rich. That's the same sort of idea. And so God has got it all. God owns it all. And we're stewards in the process of anything that God actually gives us. You know, and, and, and of course we want to be content no matter we're, we're in seasons of plenty or seasons of want. We want to learn that process. But what we do have to understand is that no matter what we have and no matter how we contribute it, God is actually in control of it all. So that also means that anything that God wants to bring about according to God's will, God is responsible to bring that about. God does that. And yes, we want to be participants in that, and God wants us to participate in that, but it's ultimately God who brings it about. 
And when we think about who God will use to bring it about, sometimes it won't be the person who we think it is. Sometimes it might be that person who we think is the most inexperienced, the newest, the youngest, but yet God has got something in store for that individual, and God will actually be there in ways for that person to bring about what God actually will want brought about. And so it's a, a lot of times it's on us to sort of correct and orient ourselves in the process as we sort of navigate these seasons to figure out how we can get in touch with what God is doing. What do we therefore need to do so that we can sort of make sure that we are walking in faith and trusting God in those seasons? What are we called to do out of that trust and faith? We're called to participate in ways. In this case, they participated because they all contributed. And, you know, I'll make one point about this, but I'm preaching to the choir at this point. All of you, you, you live this one. You know, a lot of times in most churches, you know, me and Patty were a part of a church for a lot of years where, you know, <laughs> I'm going to share something about you, Patty, on this. Um, she wanted to serve. She wanted to be a part of ministry. Okay, but the way that the trust church was structured because of the denomination, they just didn't allow women to do much of anything. And so... You know, Patty was ra- Patty's mom is a pastor, so she is raised like in ministry. When Patty went off to college, she was, you've heard of her university? University, right? She's like the president of her chapter in college. I mean, she was in ministry, she was in active ministry. That's just what she's accustomed to. And then, you know, she, she meets me, she marries me, and I'm a, I'm a part of this church that's got this, denom- that I'm attending a denomination that is super restrictive when it comes to women. And so she's sort of, volunteering wherever they let her volunteer. And she did that for years. And so we, we joke about it, but you know, it's not actually that funny that you know, she's sort of the special day hostess, which means you know, on special occasions like Mother's Day, um, you know, she gets to then participate by sort of identifying the mom with the most kids or the oldest mother and you know, celebrating them. And so she'll sort of walk around and find the oldest person, oldest mother or the mom with the most kids um, and have them stand and sort of do a presentation. And, you know, that comes every now and then. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. That is true ministry. Absolutely true ministry. You know, but, but we also find it, you know, kind of strange that, you know, it's an African-American church. So as Patty's approaching people, you know, they're like, okay, here's this one Caucasian person who stands out who doesn't seem to fit in. She must be a visitor. And so Patty's going to greet people, but the issue is they think that she's the visitor. And she continually <laughs> ran into that because it's a huge church. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, she's trying to participate. You know, <laughs> she's trying to actually get it. And there, there, there really is a direction to spiritual growth and development, and it is that direction. It's like you, you, you get off of the pews of observing, and you get into the role of actually participating in ministry. And, and that really is the direction of growth that God is trying to take us all through as, as a congregation and as a group of people and as his people. A lot of times in a lot of churches, you have people who are content to just sort of sit and be in the congregation for 20, 30 years and never really get involved in anything. And I'm not saying people have to get involved in specific ministries in that church, but God should actually be growing them and moving them in ways where ministry is happening somehow. If it's not within the walls of the church, it's happening on the outside of the church, which is probably even more important. God should be moving people in ways where they're participating more and more so um, in ministry. And... This is a place in in Scripture where we see, yes, because in this construction of the temple, the point of which is to show the world their God, it's not just David who's going to do it, it's the people who God actually moves into the role of participating even more so. 
And that's actually what God brings about. And so from this, I think we can take some pretty, pretty solid sort of application and lessons. You know, um, we are in an interesting season as a church. So we're in a season, once again, where we are trying to figure out what God would have for us um, as a congregation. Our numbers are small. We're not huge. We were never huge, but we definitely were bigger than what we were today. And part of that is because we've been without a pastor for, you know, a, a season. Um, but let us not forget that in these seasons, God has actually given us a blueprint for how to navigate this. And I, w- I would think back, to, not to just this scripture, but we have examples like the nuns, like the people who are still showing that God is active despite you know, small numbers, despite being in their 80s. God is still moving in ways where Christ is showing up in the world and is being manifested in new ways. And even though in the Old Testament they're talking about we want to show the world our God through this temple, when we get to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says about himself, hey, I tell you there's something greater than the temples here, and he's talking about himself. And so who is the person, who are the people who are supposed to show and demonstrate Christ to the world? Well, that's us. That is us. And so how do we then move into a place where we are participating more and more in the ministry of God's kingdom development in a time and a season where we think, okay, but, you know, we're shrinking, and we're in this season where we don't necessarily have someone in the pastor role at the helm, and how's that supposed to happen? Well, the solution is the blueprint, which is you trust God. You continue to trust God. You continue to press in. And yes, we take seriously those things like prayer. We take seriously things like we get into our scripture, and we lift each other up, and we fast. We take those disciplines very seriously, and we then get active. And whatever active means for us. But I do think this is an opportunity for us to understand our charism a bit. What is it that actually caused us to come together? What, what's the hallmarks of this community as a body of believers? And understanding that DNA, what God is actually going to do going forward from this. Because we've got some opportunities that we're trying to understand and discern where God is taking us. And so part of the prayer request you know, that, that I do hope we all can sort of continue to lift, lift up the congregation about really is, you know, that God would direct us in these ways because we've got, we've got some plans in place, um, starting today, as a matter of fact, even we've got some, where we'll have some conversations with people. Um, and, you know, those conversations aren't necessarily, okay, here's what's going to happen, and it's laid out and clear. It's conversations to just engage to try to discern, okay, God, are you in this? Because, God, if you're about this, then... We're going to try to be faithful to you in this. But the people who you may bring, we trust that you're going to speak to them as well. And maybe there's going to be a meeting somehow to, to sort of confirm for us that, God, you, you really would have us go this way. Bottom line, God is in control, though. God is in control. So no matter which direction it is, we still go forward with the idea that, you know what, God, you've got it. Anything that's take, that it takes in order to move forward You've got those resources in terms of people, talent, ability, anything that it takes to move forward in terms of getting us to the place where we've got the right attitude. We trust, Lord, that you would bring us to a place of, I would say, desperation, as Frank said, so that we can actually get in touch with you, God, and actually orient ourselves accordingly and just sit back and not sit back, but actually watch what God is going to bring about. And it may be something according to what we envision. Okay, maybe we launch and relaunch in some new ways. And it may be something completely different. We don't relaunch in ways 
but we still can see how God is going to then further His kingdom in ways that we couldn't even imagine because maybe we resource some new group, some new person, and God takes it from there and we actually see God move. And so all of this scripture, I think, is just something to give us one more glimpse of a reminder that God is in control of every situation. That no matter what the context, no matter what season that we go through of desperation, God has already mapped it out in some ways. And what God is waiting for a lot of times is God is using those situations in order to truly bring glory to himself, but also to get our attention so that we can orient ourselves in ways where we grow and develop and can participate more fully in the next season as to whatever God would have in store. What that looks like, you know, we'll stay in prayer together as a congregation. Amen? Amen. So with that, let's, uh, let's, let's close and keep in prayer, obviously, the, the, the plans that you know, God has for this group and this congregation. But also, you know, there, there's, a, there's a big world out there, and God is interested in establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I think Frank said that one too. Um, Mike said that, okay, right on. Um, <laughs> right on, Mike, all right. <laughs> And we want to be about his business. We want to be about his business. So let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you are in control of all things, God. Lord, and in the season that we are journeying through together, Lord, we know that we don't journey it alone, Lord, but that you lead and guide the way, Father. That you give us each other along this way, Lord. Lord, that we are to look to you, Lord, that we're not to look to our own efforts, Lord, in this process. Lord, but that as you direct us, Lord, we should be discerning to hear. And those things that we hear, Lord, we should be faithful to put into practice. Lord, help us to walk in obedience by your Spirit. Help us to see those things that you desire to bring about and move into our respective positions, Lord, so that we can participate in what you have Lord, I thank you once again, Lord, for bringing us here in this space, Lord. I thank you for each and every person who is here, Lord, who desires to continue to hold on, Lord, to you through this season, Lord, that you would be glorified. Lord, and as we turn to go forward, Lord, into conversations of the week, Lord, I pray that we would continue to take your perspective as our perspective, that we would begin to see the things that we encounter as the way you see them, Lord, that you would bring people into our lives and into our past, Lord, for our strengthening, for their strengthening, but ultimately for your glory. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.